And you don't want to miss Thursday, September 12th, 2019. Shea Joseph, 6 p.m., Greater Springfield NAACP Annual Freedom Fund Banquet. The Reverend Rudolph W. McKissick is the keynote speaker. You can get your tickets on our Facebook page, Greater Springfield NAACP. Uh, there's an Eventbrite link there. You can click it and purchase your tickets right now. I'd get them right now, though. Um, I don't even know what's left or anything, but I'd get it right now. It's going to be off the chain. It's going to be a wonderful event, a wonderful celebration, um, and we'll be awarding our youth, community service, veterans, and our Hennessy Award uh, on that evening. A lot of good things are going to be happening. It's going to be a great time of celebration uh, and also of challenge to continue uh, the fight for social justice. Uh, And speaking of social justice, the NFL kicked off Inspire Change. Now, the funny thing about that is a year ago, you know, Um, In the midst of this controversy of them blackballing Colin Kaepernick and um, not wanting black players to take a knee to protest injustice, people like Jay-Z and Meek Mill, they were telling Travis Scott and others who were planning on performing, you know, Jermaine Dupri and others at the Super Bowl, that they were sellouts. They they shouldn't do it. What what are you doing this for? We got to stay the course. We Meek Mill said we got to stay strong in this ish. Uh, yeah, and but now Jay Z is down with the NFL, and Meek Mill is performing for them seven months later because they were just saying this in February of this year around the Super Bowl time. Seven months later, all of a sudden. The NFL is worth performing for? I guess so. When you're getting a check. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. The things people do for money, 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 money. Money. Yeah, I I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, And so (laughs) here's the thing. They decided what we're going to do, we're going to open up a apparel line. We're going to sell T-shirts, hats, whatever, <clears throat> inspire change on it. And we're going to take some of the proceeds from the money that you give us by buying our stuff. And we're going to take a little piece of that and we're going to decide what organizations that fight for social justice that are worthy of us blessing them with some of your money. Isn't that, isn't that, I mean, it's a brilliant idea. I mean, make you think that they're fighting for social justice. Get you to give them your money. Break off a little smidgen of your money and give it to an organization that not you choose, that they choose to give to and say, We're fighting for social justice. Wouldn't it be easier for you to just take your money 
and give it to whatever organization you want to give it to? I mean, the only difference is you won't have a cheap T-shirt or hat that says Inspire Change on it, and they won't have 80% of your money and break it off 20% to the organization of their choice. You know? Um, And here's the thing. They chose an organization called the Crushers Club. The Crushers Club, a boxing program in Chicago. And, you know, that that, that sounds kind of harmless. But when you delve into it and do the research, and it didn't take much, you know, to do the research. I don't understand why the NFL, Jay-Z, and Rock Nation couldn't have done the research. Um, They gave it to this crazy group. Um, called the Crushers Club that cuts off dreadlocks of black boys, praises the Chicago police, the same Chicago police that murdered Laquan McDonald and so many others. They use the racist term, all lives matter. Well, Reverend, how could all lives matter be racist? All lives matter is a rebuttal phrase to black lives matter. We know that. Let's not play games with it. Okay. Um, but the NFL, you know, decided we're going to give these folks some money and ignored everything that was wrong with the organization. I mean, it, 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 it's a white savior organization, okay? Um, you know those organizations. Sally Hazelgrove is the name of the, of the founder and the lady who runs the organization. It's one of those white savior syndrome type of people who, well, you know, I work with black kids in the inner city. You know, it kind of makes them feel okay about their racism. Um, but she spews white supremacist talking points. You know, um, but but she's getting a four hundred thousand dollar check. Yeah, four hundred thousand dollar check to run off talking about all lives matter. She's out tweeting, "We need Trump." to help us with gang violence in Chicago. But she was tweeting statistics to Barack Obama. She says things like, I love God, my family, my country, youth, and our law enforcement. So I'm an anomaly in Chicago. Then she takes pictures, cutting off the dreadlocks of black boys, saying another crusher is looking for a better life. As if somehow... Black culture, dreadlocks, is related to a bad life. And the only way to get to a better life is to get rid of your blackness. This is the organization that Rock Nation and the NFL decided was worthy to give multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight for social justice. Yeah. This be the group. 
This be the organization that's going to help us get social justice. So, you know, is is Jay-Z going to cut his dreads off? Just wondering, you know, since, you know, that's the road to a better life. Get rid of your blackness. I guess women ought to get rid of their cornrows. You know, or, or whatever other, you know, black cultural hairstyles that they have. Get get your weave out. Get, you know, get ready to get, get to a better life. You know, put on your whiteness. You know, uh, I guess that's what you got to do. Now, this is the group. That, now, help me understand why. They did not do a better job of vetting who they were giving money to in an initiative that is supposed to be about social justice. I'm going to give it to a white supremacist Trump supporting lady who cuts off black boys dreadlocks as part of our social justice initiative. I mean, what the hell is going on? Somebody help me understand, Jay-Z. Oh, man. This is what happens when you sell your soul to the devil. You know, he could have taken his name, his fame, his notoriety, and supported any social justice organization in America. Could have partnered with any other organization he wanted to and brought attention to social injustice without compromising himself. But he chose to partner with the NFL because it's the big, it's the big dog, you know, and he wants to be a team owner and all of that kind of stuff. How do you partner with the organization that still has the black man who started the whole conversation blackballed and won't let him in the league? How do you inspire change when the dude that was inspiring change has been blackballed from the organization that's claiming it wants to inspire change? I'm confused. Help me to understand. Now, all y'all Jay-Z supporters who've been slamming me. Yeah, you don't know what Jay-Z going to do. You just mad. You don't got Jay-Z's money. You just mad. You ain't at the table. Come on, defend this. Defend this. I'm ready. Come with it. 413-736-2781. Defend them giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to a Trump-loving white lady who cuts off black boys' dreads as a social justice initiative. I want y'all to defend it. Explain it to me. Help me understand. Explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. I just want to weigh in on the subject you're speaking on now with uh, Jay-Z and Meek Mill and, um, and the National Football Association. Well, this right here, if any, anybody in this country know anything about uh, sharecropping and the way all our people came up, supposedly, here we are making all of the money for the people that own the farms. And as it is, they turn around at the end of the year and say, you didn't make anything or you didn't get no 
retributions or whatever for what the product that you sold. So at the end of the year, you got to start all over again with nothing. And that's how they kept our people uh, on the farms and doing making money for them. And they're still doing the same thing now. Our boys are out there playing football and getting in shape and doing whatever they need to do every year to get on these, these professional teams. And the owners sit up there and wait for to get the best players out there in order to make their teams better and turn around and say, okay, no matter what you do, if you speak out against our rules and regulations, um, we're going to get rid of you. So I just wanted to weigh in on that. And hopefully you're going to, I know you're going to get some, some feedback on that, but uh, thank you very much, sir, for your time and your efforts. Have a good day. All right. Thank you for your call. 413-736-2781. Explain it to me, people. Help me understand. Here is something you just don't understand. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Um, I just wanted to, uh, your, your, your mind, your, uh, your audience tomorrow. Uh, uh, tomorrow there's um, an election uh, primary in Springfield, I believe. And um, also later this week on Thursday, we're going to have a rise for social justice. We're going to have a memorial for Michael M. Bresney uh, at the South Congregational Church uh, on Maple Street from 6 to 9 p.m. It's free and it's open to the public. And uh, we will welcome uh, all supporters in Springfield. Uh, thank you very much. All right. Only on WTCC do you get to call in and make your announcements. It don't have nothing to do with the topic. <laughs> We're a community radio station, so, you know, it is what it is. 413-736-2781. Help me understand it. Because y'all Jay-Z fans are quiet now, you know. Uh, you know, when I first came out criticizing the partnership, you need to wait and see. You don't know what Jigga going to do. You don't know what Jigga. Jigga has proven himself. Okay. Y'all quiet now. They're giving money to white supremacists as part of a social justice initiative. Y'all ain't got nothing to say now. Mm, yeah, that's what I thought. 413-736-2781 is the number here. Uh, and I'll continue to allow you to talk about that subject if you choose to. Um, you know, you want to come and you want to explain to me, you know. Maybe you maybe you figured it out. Maybe, you know, it's just kind of a, you know, fake left and go right kind of thing. You know, well, you know what happened was he decided to give it to the white supremacists to kind of throw you off the case so that they come back later on. I don't know. I mean, help me understand. That's all. Now, listen, 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 more than more than two million Americans are addicted to opioid class drugs. Uh, the CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control, reports that overdose deaths involving uh, prescription opioids have quadrupled since uh, 2000. And drug overdoses now kill more people every year than gun violence or car accidents. That, that's a staggering figure. Uh, opioids are a class of drugs that range from illegal drugs like heroin, fentanyl, to legally prescribed pain relievers like oxycodone, codone, morphine, oxycontin. Uh, it is a problem. Good morning, caller. 
Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Bishop. Um, the, uh, the only thing I have to say about it is that this is what we get when we start appointing uh, rap stars and football stars as our social justice advocates. And so Jay-Z's only thing is, is to make the Zionist community richer. He never had any intentions on doing anything for Colin Kaepernick or, or, or the social justice issue. And a lot of the things that he was doing beforehand, I believe, was him setting up to do what he eventually has done. Well, listen, first of all, first of all, I'm not impressed. First of all, I'm not impressed with any of the things he did prior Mm -hmm. uh, that has a social justice label or tag on it. Because, first of all, bailing out your own artists, (laughs) you know, bailing out Meek Mm -hmm. Mill, a, a millionaire rapper. That ain't no social justice initiative. I mean, we we really got indigent people who who are being railroaded by the system, who can't afford to get bailed out. Um, you, you know, the, the, the bailing out protesters in a high profile uh, case like Ferguson or something like that that doesn't impress me, especially when it's getting right. all of the media attention and all of that donating money to the Trayvon Martin foundation after all of the attention that the Trayvon Martin case has got, that's not impressive to me. You know, when I first got out of college, when, when I first got out of college, you know, I started working with a, 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 a white Jewish lawyer here who, who some of you all may remember him um, named Art Sirota. Um, yes. and, and, and we were bailing out and, 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 and providing resources for young black men who were behind the wall. Uh, we were doing this 30 years ago without fanfare, without high profile cases, without a lot of money and resources and all of that. Those are the type of people that impress me bailing out millionaire rappers and stuff, and then putting it out there. Like I'm a warrior for social justice. I don't, I ain't buying that, bro. I got one question for you, sir. Uh, my, my whole thing with the Colin Kaepernick thing is, why why is, do we have this expectation after he did the, the great service that he did for our community that the National Football League is going to accept him back to have a job? And why are, is that such a high demand for social justice issues? And also, Colin, Ka- Colin Kaepernick got paid for um, them do, allegedly not doing what they did to him, blackball him. Isn't now, it now, 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 now let, let me let me try to Is answer. Let me let, 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 let okay. me let me try to answer that. <clears throat> First, um, I think that if you're if you're going to be genuine, or if you're going to be credible about your desire to bring about social change and to fight for social justice, then you got to start internally. So you can't say we're going to blackball this black man, keep him out of the league uh, because he fought for uh, against injustice. But then we're going to turn around and say we're going to fight for social justice, but we're not going to right that wrong before we do right, it. Right, right. So, so, so in order for me to take right. you serious and to be credible, uh, you, you got to first deal with that. You can't tell me you fighting for me in terms of justice, and you still got an injustice that you haven't corrected internally. So it's a fraud, then. It's a yeah. fraud with the NFL and Jay-Z are doing. is the absolute fraud. And so 
what do we, uh, I'm going to hang up with this. What do you suggest, Brother Bishop, is the next step that we should take insofar as the NFL, Jay-Z, and all the rest of the hypocrisy that's going on? Thank you for taking my call. Well, I, I, think, I think we ought to put it in the perspective, in its proper perspective, that the NFL is not serious about social justice, that most of their billionaire owners are donating millions of dollars to an open white supremacist named Donald Trump. Uh, They could care less about black people dying in the streets or the extrajudicial murder of blacks by law enforcement. They've demonstrated that. So Maya Angelou said, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. So we, we, we need to just take it at face value that these are white supremacist owners the only use they have for black people is for them to run touchdowns for them and make money for them. You know, that's it. And fill the stands for them. They're not interested in what happens in their life off the football field. And so let's just accept that. So if you want to watch the NFL for its entertainment value and all of that, but please don't look to them to fight for social justice. We criticize Jay-Z because he's allowed white folks to play the same game that they've always played. When you have black voices of dissent, they go and they get another black voice that they think people will listen to, to counteract the voice of dissent, to silence the voice of dissent, and to make you accept their white supremacy. It's an old trick. It's, it's like when, when me and Minister Youssef and Apostle Brown and Reverend Snowden and others were here fighting the injustice in the 90s here in Springfield, they'd go and get some other Uncle Tom preachers, okay, and prop them up and do a press conference with them and say, it ain't as bad as them rabble-rousers are saying it is. And you can always find a black person who's willing to apologize for white supremacy. It's an old trick. And we got to be aware of it. 413-736-2781. Let me get back because I need to deal with this this crack versus opioid thing before I, I get off here. So so we've got all these people now who are addicted to opioids. It's killing, it's killing more people um, than gun violence. It's killing more people than car accident. Uh, there's a full-scale acknowledgement that Americans are amid an opioid epidemic, which has given rise to health campaigns that have been launched to combat the problem. It's encouraging to some extent to see the government taking a therapeutic approach to a drug crisis by looking towards alternative solutions to address the problem outside of the criminal justice system. But doing the right thing for the wrong reason still raises the red flag, you know, because we got to go back to the war on drugs to put this in its proper perspective. Um, because this therapeutic approach that they now have has not always been the case. Because when they were faced with the crack epidemic, they had a so-called war on drugs. And this war on drugs focused on increasing law enforcement personnel, expanding the prison system capacity, building prisons, 
passing mandatory minimum sentences, three strike laws, uh, the disease model of addiction widely held by the medical communities for decades had stated that addicts are more adequately served by treatment than imprisonment. They've been saying that this isn't research that just popped up on the heels of the opioid epidemic. This was well-documented research when America formulated its response to the crack epidemic. Okay. Uh, It's always been out there, but with opioid deaths disproportionately high among white people, over 80% of opioid overdose deaths are white folks. Most of the people addicted to opioids, are white folks. Drug addiction and overdose risks, they're no longer problems just for black and brown people in the hood. And it's not coincidence that the approach to addressing the drug problem of today has dramatically changed from when the face of the addict was a black or a brown face than now when the face of the attic is a white face. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what it is. Purdue Pharma, who owns OxyContin, told people that it would result in a prescription blizzard that would be deep, dense, and white. They said that back in the 1990s. 25 years later, Opioid addiction has been deemed an epidemic in the United States. It was declared two years ago in 2017 by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services uh, a public health emergency. And when Purdue Pharma introduced OxyContin in the late 90s, it was aggressively marketed and promoted. Sales grew from 48 million to 1.1 billion by the year 2000 and exploded after that. Much of the success was because they falsely claimed that the risk of addiction was less than 1%. So doctors began prescribing it widely, expanding the availability of it. And by 2004, Oxycontin became a leading drug of abuse in these yet-to-be United States of America. Individuals that had better health insurance, that had access to physicians who were willing to prescribe opioids, became the people who were the predominant users and abusers of the drug. They moved from prescription meds to street drugs like heroin and fentanyl, but the recreational use of opioids promulgated a different response, different arrest rates than what happened with crack. Because while recreational opioid use increased in white communities, the arrest rate for sale, for possession, was less than a quarter of the rate for street drugs, even though the abuse of opioids far exceeded the abuse of heroin and fentanyl and stuff on the street. 
and it was being illegally purchased, illegally prescribed. So let's make it clear. We're not talking about, oh, it was prescribed by my doctor. I got addicted. It's not my fault. It's the doctor's fault. We're talking about people getting these things illegally, illegal prescriptions, illegal obtainment of prescription drugs. Okay, there's no difference between getting prescription drugs illegally than getting heroin on the street illegally. So stop with this. Well, you know, black people got hooked on crack and crack was illegal, but, you know, uh, opioids were prescribed. No, stop it. Just cut it out. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, we call it SAMHSA for short, uh, they conduct the annual national survey of drug use. Um, a major source of information on substance use and abuse and dependence among Americans 12 years and older. Um, Their reports indicates there are 3.7 times as many people using illicit prescription opioids than heroin. 3.7, almost four times more people are using illicit prescription opioids than buying heroin off the streets. But the law enforcement response is to ignore largely those who are illegally obtaining prescription drugs because their face doesn't look like mine. White people addicted to drugs, this is the fact, ladies and gentlemen, are perceived as Victims in need of treatment. Let me say that one more again. White people addicted to drugs are perceived as victims in need of treatment. Conversely, black people addicted to drugs are perceived as criminals who need to go to jail. Mm -hmm. In black communities where many drug addicts were incarcerated or treated at methadone clinics, the suburbs saw take-back programs for unused medication. Good Samaritan laws... The availability of emergency medical service, office-based opioid maintenance programs. I mean, in general, the concern for opioid addiction and overdoses, the vast majority among white people, shifted the whole U.S. drug policy away from criminalization to a public health concern. And it should be a public health concern. I'm not arguing that. What I'm arguing is the rationale for it. Once again, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And the reason that America did the right thing in shifting drug policy was because those addicted no longer look like people like me. Those addicted started looking like they mamas. 
their daughters, their grandmamas. And when the people addicted to drugs were clear people, it became a public health emergency. So they did the right thing for racist reasons. Because, you know, we can't we can't lock Becky up. We can't we can't give Chad, you know, a three strikes law. You know, you know, we we we, we can't can't lock Sally away on a mandatory minimum. So we got to change the whole policy. We got to treat addiction as a medical issue. You know, and like I said, it should be because most health professionals agree. Addicts are more successful when treated in therapeutic environments and that incarceration does nothing to reduce future drug use. The strategies that emerge to reduce overdose risk in the suburbs completely different from the strategies that they used to deal with drug addiction in the hood. They've reestablished addiction as a medical issue to help reduce the stigma addiction has historically carried. You never saw crack addicts sitting on the couch on television talk shows telling their story. But on just about any night, you can turn on and find an opioid addict telling their story. And with an audience empathizing with their plight and all of the struggles that they've been through. They never empathize with Pookie and them. Mm -mm. The stigma of an arrest past jail time. That's a barrier black addicts disproportionately have to face. And if you're going to start legalizing marijuana, if you're going to start shifting public health responses, if you're going to deal with people addicted to opioids in a certain way, you're going to have to decriminalize personal possession of drugs for black folks that were railroaded in this dastardly racist war on drugs. You're going to have to start expunging the arrest record of those that were harmed by past punitive drug policies. Those are the things that need to be happening at le- in terms of leveling the field. You know, if the Sackler family can make the owners of Oxycontin can make an estimated $13 billion of Oxycontin sales and not be held criminally liable for pushing drugs that were known to be addictive despite the number of deaths directly associated with their product, then we ought to be able to expunge the records of small-time street dealers and addicts who were caught up in your racist war on drugs. Think about that for a moment. 
Now they're suing Big Pharma. They're suing pharmaceutical companies. And white judges are going to hold them accountable because it's your fault that white folks got addicted. But yet and still, the U.S. government, with their lax laws and policies, allowed crack to be flooded into black neighborhoods, criminalized the small-time drug dealers and the addicts, never touched those who smuggled the drugs into the United States who had the boats and planes, and then the U.S. government made money off the sale of crack. It's documented. It's proven. Oliver North, who is now the president of the National Rifle Association, was a key figure in getting money from the sale of crack in South Central L.A. and New York and Chicago and Baltimore and funneling money to the Contras in Nicaragua and to fund terrorism in the Iran-Contra conflict, all done with the knowledge of and the sanction of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, the Republicans' model president. This model president was making money off crack. Ronald Reagan and Oliver North are the biggest crack dealers that America has ever had. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Bishop. Yes, you're... Uh, great topic. Great topic. Um, you got another crisis now. All right. And that's the vaping. That's the vaping. Look out for that one. Because this vaping thing, if they don't take it off the market, the clear people, they're really going to be in trouble. And we should let our sons and daughters know that being around it, the secondhand um, uh, uh, um, contact is just as bad, if not worse. So that's the other crisis that's coming down. So look out for that one. All right. Thank you for your call. 413-736-2781. I'll take your calls to show close. Um, now, you know, if you've got a different viewpoint, I want to hear it. If you if you want to say, Bishop, you're completely off basis, had nothing to do with race, and you want to give me a salient point to prove that, um, I'm willing to listen. But I think I've made the case. Uh, and I can, I can go on and on and do a series of shows with specific examples that make the case. Now, addiction itself has nothing to do with black and white addiction. Uh, it knows no color. I mean, it's a devastating disease um, from which no racial, gender, or socioeconomic group is immune. Uh, addiction ruins the lives of individuals and families every single day. I had a very close cousin of mine I grew up with who who, who died on New Year's Day of a heroin uh, overdose. It's been 19 years. Um it ruins families every day. He left behind three children. Um, it, it's equally as tragic regardless of what color you are, where you live, or whether you get your fix from a dealer or from a physician. It doesn't matter. Uh, the epidemiological shift in addiction patterns for opioids toward predominantly white people has produced a significant positive side effect in that addiction is now being treated as a public health concern. 
that should ensure the best outcomes for all those in need of help. But that's only if they consistently apply these strategies, regardless of who the addict is. And and the reason why I, I talk about this is because it's critical that we shed light on the bias that has prevented these changes from occurring earlier. These changes should have been occurring for the last 30 years to ensure that all individuals, regardless of their racial or economic situation, have access to treatment services that are effective and treat the addict with respect. There should be equitable access to the addiction interventions that promote better health outcomes, that decrease stigmatization, that serve to forge a stronger society. This should have been happening for a long, long, long time. And we have to expose the bias so that it doesn't happen like that again. 413-736-2781. Yeah. And there are those who still want to deny history. They want to deny um, the role that the government played in the crack epidemic, the money they made off it, the funding of terrorism um, and all of that. Um, but we're aware of what happened, and there's no need to deny it. Uh, it is what it is. I mean, the difference between dope and medicine, the difference between a junkie and a victim depends on the race and the class of the user. That has been America's policy. Poor black and brown users of crack or heroin are junkies on dope and they need to go to prison. But middle to upper class whites using opioids are victims on medicine and they need assistance. That has been the American drug policy. Until... No, well, it's still the policy because the whole opioid response is based on that policy. And we've got to do better than that. And we can't get defensive about it. We can't, you can't get defensive about what's been proven. You, 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 you can't ignore <laughs> what happened in the 80s and the 90s. You, you can't just say that di- that didn't happen because it did. We lived it. We lived through it. There are some of us who lived through that time. I was in college during that time. You know, um, we saw the crack babies being born. We saw the response. We saw the lock them up. We saw there are people still in jail now because of mandatory minimum sentences, because of crime bills that were passed and promulgated. One guy running for president now, Joe Biden, author of the crime bill. They want to be tough on drugs, build prisons, throw away the key. I mean, 
it is what it is. There's a there's a man in Michigan right now where marijuana has been legalized. He sold three pounds of marijuana to an undercover cop and got sentenced to 40 to 60 years. He's been in prison for 25 years. His mama died while he was in prison. His daddy died while he was in prison. His brother died while he was in prison. He still has 15 years to serve before he's eligible for pro- for probation or for or for parole rather. And they're legally selling the product he's in prison for in Michigan and some of the retired law enforcement officials that locked people like him up for selling marijuana are investing in the cannabis industry and making money off of it. And he's still in prison. This is America. This is America. I got to get out your way. I, you know, this is a subject that we can just go on and on and on and on and on with. But remember, tomorrow is primary election uh, here in Massachusetts. And so there are people who are running for office in the various wards um, in our city uh, and across the Commonwealth. And tomorrow is your day to go to the polls. Now, don't make no excuses uh, when it comes to going to vote. Now, if y'all can stand in line for hours so you can get some chicken at Popeye's, and literally Popeye sell out a chicken nationwide because black folk was standing in line for some chicken. Y'all can go and vote on tomorrow, okay? So go out and vote on tomorrow. And remember Thursday, the Greater Springfield NAACP annual Freedom Fund Dinner is taking place. Go right now to our Facebook page and purchase your ticket right now. Now, you don't want to miss it. Uh, My friend and brother, the Bishop Rudolph McKissick, is going to be our keynote speaker. He'll be in the house on tomorrow, and you want to be there to hear him. I'm going to play the radio card one more time, then I'm going to get out your way. Mrs. Cynthia Butler is in the studio. She's coming up next. Don't touch the dial because she's coming with mid-morning jazz and great black music. So you want to enjoy that. You don't, you don't want to mess with that. You want to just go on and enjoy all it has to offer. Stay with us. This program is underwritten by the Greater Springfield NAACP. The Greater Springfield NAACP is celebrating 101 years. From 1918 to 2019, the branch has been fighting for justice across the Pioneer Valley. To commemorate this milestone, the branch presents the Centennial Freedom Fund Banquet. This event takes place on Thursday, September 12th at 6 p.m. at the Shazos F. Banquet Hall, 176 Shoemaker Lane, Agawam, Massachusetts. The keynote speaker is Bishop Rudolph W. McKissick, Jr. of Jacksonville, Florida. For ticket information, please see the Greater Springfield NAACP Facebook page. For ticket information, please see the Greater Springfield NAACP Facebook page. When we fight, we win. WTCC would like to thank the Greater Springfield NAACP for underwriting with us. All right, y'all. I got to go. If you're looking for a place to worship, check me out at the Spring of Hope Church of God in Christ, 35 Alden Street, 
Springfield, Massachusetts. Check us out 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We're building better tomorrows by changing lives today. I got to go. Till the next time I talk to you, you talk to me. Always remember God loves you, and so do I. See ya.